0: Uh, The text is is Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 1 through 14. I want to talk to you for a couple of minutes before we open up the sermon and confess to you that I'm a a little bit nervous in my flesh about the next few Sundays uh, because we're going to be going through Ezekiel 16. It's one of the longest chapters in the Bible after uh, 119th Psalm. It's one of the longest chapters in the Bible. I will not be covering the whole chapter this morning, only the first 14 verses, and it is one of the most scandalizing chapters in the Bible. If I were to, were to how can I put this, the, our English translations translate some parts of it rather gently. We'll put it that way. If I was to give you most kind of literal renderings of the Hebrew, some of you wouldn't want to look me in the eye on the way out of church today in chapter 16. And so this text is going to present some difficulties. Uh, and even some things that are, um, are just going to be kind of awkward and uncomfortable, um, sort of Song of Solomon esque things, if you know if you know what I mean there. And if there, but let me before I get to that. Let me ask: Do we have any in in, in the congregation this morning? Are you a, are you a big brother or a big sister? And you got to experience uh, your little brother, your little sister. Coming home, right? New, new baby in the house. Raise your hand if you've gotten to experience that. Okay, lots of you have. Lots of you have. And you can probably tell me what that was like, that moment of getting to bring home little baby brother, little baby sister. Does anybody want to tell me what it was like? Was it, do, you have, do you have a word to describe it? Maybe a word or two. You can just shout it out. What would be a word or two? Yeah. Loud. loud. It was loud. Good. Exciting. <laughs> Exciting. Yes. All right. Yes. What? Stressful. stressful. <laughs> and so it is exciting. It is loud, and stressful, and it, but there's a lot of joy concentrated around those moments because we love to celebrate those moments when God brings new life into a family. Right? Thou, those are moments of great rejoicing, even if it comes with abject terror at what might be ahead. There's there's objective rejoicing. I want you to think for a moment of everything you know that we've talked about thus far in Ezekiel about the city of Jerusalem and the kind of oracles that have been uh, pointed in the direction of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem has been the focus of the last few chapters, namely on their failure to love and worship Yahweh, but also their just outright refusal to do so. In the previous chapter, 15, Jerusalem was identified as a kind of useless vine, doesn't bear any fruit, and you can't even use it for firewood. And so in chapter 16, I'm going to, uh, the, the reading of our text, I know typically we just take the time to, uh, to, to read it and then move into it. I'm, I'm going to read the text kind of slowly and offer some comment as we go, and then I'm going to get to the, the sermon, kind of unpacking what we can learn from it. And so Ezekiel chapter 16 Israel, I'll direct you to go as I break with our tradition just a bit. Again, the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. Make known to Jerusalem her abominations. We're going to pause just there for a moment. God tells Ezekiel that the purpose of this parable will be make known, to make known to Jerusalem her abominations. Abomination is an interesting word. It shows up a little over a hundred times in the Old Testament. About 35 of those occurrences, which is the majority in one book, uh, are in Ezekiel. The word shows up more in Ezekiel than in any other Old Testament book. And it's an especially significant word in the Old Testament because it deals with especially heinous, especially egregious, especially offensive sin. And I think sometimes the conception is that, well, you know, you, you read the Old Testament law, and nearly everything gets called an abomination. That's really not true. Uh, the word shows up just about 20 times in the first five books of the Bible. Okay, so, books of the law. Um, I mean, and in the book of Leviticus, for example, I think it's about 15 times in, no, 12 times in Deuteronomy. But in Leviticus, there's only one thing in the whole book of Leviticus that's called an abomination, and that is uh, sexual immorality, particularly homosexuality, which is interesting. New Testament scholar Horace Hummel defines an abomination as a vile act, reprehensible to Yahweh, and incompatible with faith in him and worship of him. Okay? So, so the Lord tells Ezekiel, make known to them these kinds of sins. Right? He says, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. This is interesting because it isn't exactly true as a flat genealogical statement. That is, Abraham did not descend from the two groups. Can you go back to verse three, please? Uh, Abraham did not descend from either of those two groups. Okay? It could be a reference to Israel's national story kind of starting in Egypt. I'm more and more convinced it is. But additionally, it's also something like an insult, much like a certain scene in a certain Monty Python movie involving hamsters and the scent of elderberries. What happens then? I mean, what's, what's the point of saying this? The, the point is saying that there's paganism in your blood. Paganism in your blood is the idea. And what happens to descendants of pagans? Well, verse 4, as for your birth on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No one pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. You were cast out to the open field. You were abhorred on the day that you were born. So we have this image in this parable. God is saying, Jerusalem, you are like this This infant, this newborn that was thrown out, tossed aside like garbage. No one to cut your umbilical cord, wash you with water, rub you with salt, which is an ancient practice. Uh, Think of cleaning and and, and scrubbing. Nor nor wrap you in swaddling cloths. In other words, no one to love you and care for you. That's the point. You were cast out, verse 5. You were hated, abhorred on the day that you were born. We find out, Later in this text that this cast out and forgotten child is a baby girl which is not surprising given the nature of the metaphor in Hebrew almost all of your cities are feminine in in terms of the uh, just the gender of the of the word Uh, and so it's not surprising but this the, the picture we're given is this baby girl that's tossed aside Tim Keller observes that in the ancient world daughters were often seen as less profitable than sons. And there's a rather chilling archaeological find from Alexandria, Egypt, from about this same time period. Archaeologists dug up an inscription, and it was a letter from a a businessman in Alexandria, Egypt, to his pregnant wife while he was away on business. What's so chilling about it is that it's a very boring, mundane list of things. He's talking to his wife, again, who's pregnant. You know, don't forget this and that. Don't forget to tend the garden and feed the goat and keep up with our commitments. And then suddenly, right in the middle of it, very casually, oh yeah, and don't forget, if it's a girl, throw it out. So, unfortunately, this wasn't heard of. Wasn't unheard of, excuse me. The basic idea being that a child needed to be profitable. And if it was going to be burdensome or low return or endanger your comfort, then you can just throw it out. This should give us pause when we realize that the dumpsters behind abortion clinics offer the same options, often for the same reasons. This child then is orphaned and left for dead. And what happens? What happens? Verse 6. I passed by you. This is the Lord speaking. Saw you wallowing in your blood, and I said to you in your blood, live. And he repeats it. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. So God says you were worthless by any human measure, cast out, forgotten, abandoned, despised, basically dead. And I came to you and I said, live. Then we come to verse 7. You grew up, became tall, arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. The language here is enough to make you blush in church. What's going on here? Well, to American eyes and ears, this sounds alarming and uncomfortable and maybe a little bit creepy. For the sake of time, I want to say that on the one hand, it's kind of supposed to alarm you. More on that in a few minutes. But on the other hand, I want to say this is also something of a Hebraic and poetic way of speaking. He's basically saying, you grew up. I planted you, you grew up, you became a woman, head to toe, and you didn't just exist, you thrived. That's the point of the language. You didn't just survive, you thrived. But you were still, the text says, naked and bare. That is weak and defenseless and vulnerable. And indeed, think of Israel's story. By way of Joseph's help, Israel goes into Egypt. They multiply over several generations. Right? Israel grows up. She goes from a nobody to a somebody so much that Pharaoh's threatened. The problem is she's still a weak and defenseless somebody. And that's why she gets oppressed by Pharaoh. What does the Lord say in verse 8? When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. I spread the corner of my garment over you. It's language you might recognize from Ruth. Covered, you, excuse me, covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you. Entered into a covenant with you. Declares the Lord God. And you became mine. You became mine. He's telling Jerusalem, Israel, his people. When you grew up, I made you my wife. This language again is echoed in, in Ruth. And what does she have, Jerusalem, now that she is a wife? Well, before we even get there. Can we just take a moment and be astonished at the downright uncomfortable language of love and, dare I say it, even passion that the Lord uses? What happens? This this orphan, left for dead, now given life, becomes a queen. She becomes a queen. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, anointed you with oil. Uh, Keep going. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth shod you with fine fine leather I wrapped you in fine linen covered you with silk adorned you with ornaments put bracelets on your wrists a chain on your neck a ring on your nose in the ancient world far more common maybe maybe it tilts a bit more toward like uh, rebellion imagery today but in the ancient world far more common earrings in your ears a beautiful crown on your head there it is the orphan's now a queen and so, this, so it's not just a change in status, it's a radical rescue, right? And in the ancient world, it would have been enough, for, I mean, if she was rescued and just became a household servant, everyone around her, I know it's a parable, but, but work with me, everyone around her would have said, you are so fortunate, right? Left for dead and somebody found you and, and brought you into their house and now you're sort of one of the servants of the household. But no, this is, this is somebody that's become now a queen, and so, verse, verse uh, 12 tells us, she has the crown placed on her head. Verse 13, then, tells us that she, uh, is indeed, uh, has advanced to royalty. You're adorned with gold and silver. Your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And finally, verse 14, your renown went forth among the nations. Because of your beauty. This is no doubt a reference to David's kingdom and particularly Solomon's kingdom. If you're familiar with the stories of Solomon, you know the queen of Sheba comes in. This this Gentile foreign ruler comes in and is left in awe at the glory of uh, of the Lord and his gifts to Solomon. How did it get to be that way, though? By the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Okay, so that's the parable or at least this first part of it. God gives to Ezekiel, and he begins by this astonishing, undeserved, uncomfortably intimate love of God for his people. As the chapter continues, what we're going to discover, and if you've got it open, if you've got a Bible open to this text, I mean, if you keep reading, you know the very next verse starts with the scandal of Israel's rejection of that love. But I want us simply to pause for a moment to consider this part of the parable and to learn about God. Because these first 14 verses of the parable reveal at least three things about God that were true of them now and are still true of Him today. First of all, so if the question before us is, who is this God? What sort of God is this? And again, that's been the repeated refrain through Ezekiel, you remember? That they will know that I am the Lord. So what are, what are we learning about the Lord here? First, he is the God who resurrects the despised. Second, he is the God who loves the worthless. And third, he is the God who fills the empty. So he resurrects the despised, he loves the worthless, he fills the empty. And Burley, I'm just realizing that all of that stuff we just went through is the first few selections. And so where we need to go is the second occurrence of verse 3 in that list. Does that make sense? I'm very sorry. The, the, three, the three points, sure, sure. He is the God who resurrects the despised, the God who loves the worthless, the God who fills the empty. God bless you, man. Resurrects the despised, loves the worthless, and fills the empty. So the God who resurrects the despised. But just to go back to verse 3, right? This statement meant to alarm and even offend. What's most important is that God's telling Israel, I made you a holy nation. That's a big picture of this text. I made you a holy nation I made you my people you didn't start out good little godly pious people your ancestors were pagans and on top of that he doesn't come along then and say but it's okay you were fine <laughs> he says you were you were cast aside and I came to you and I said live that's verse 6 right god comes god comes to them and says you were wallowing in your blood is the language he uses I came to you and I said, live. A moment ago, he called them pagans. And they have to be given life. And this is absolutely crushing for any sense of pride, isn't it? Don't go thinking you are so wonderful because of your wonderful origins. Much like, much like the Pharisees in John 8, talking to Jesus, saying, "You know, Well, don't, don't, uh, don't uh, condemn us or threaten us. We have Abraham as our father, so that's our sort of claim to spiritual security. And this is the problem that continues, right, in our own hearts. Much like the Pharisees, much like Jerusalem, rooting our hope and security in our ancestry is a temptation, can be a temptation. I'm not convinced it is so much our temptation right now because, in part because, the present generation and our present cultural moment, we're taught to hate our ancestors and despise the generations that came before us. Our temptation, I think, is more that we tend to root our security in the legitimacy of our, of our own individualistic faith journey, our, own, our, our very own spirituality that we have forged ourselves. I think that's where we tend to root our security, in a self-created religion. So as long as my story is designed by me, that's what matters most. And by the way, it's what makes my story true if it is consistent with my experiences and consistent with my emotions and consistent with my hurts and, and pains and uh, you know maybe, maybe the, the, the painful things I've experienced, that's what makes my story true. Basically, we're always trying to design our own religion that feels like us. We're trying to design our own law that sounds like us and trying to design our own God who looks like us. And God is the one who comes and says, you think you are so strong, don't you? But you are weak and vulnerable and exposed and worthless and nobody cares about you. And I came to you when you were at the edge of death and didn't know it. And I said, live. Because our God resurrects the despised. and That's you and me. But also he's the God who loves the worthless. Verse 5. Can you go back to verse 5? It's it's the next one. He says, you were abhorred. You were hated. No one pitied you. No one felt sorry for you. And then you grew up. right? That's this planted language. I planted you. You grew up. And verse 9, I made you a queen. But look at the language of verse 9. It's really interesting. He says, I I bathed you. Uh, The Hebrew can also be washed you with water, washed off your blood from you, anointed you with oil. And then she's clothed and given jewelry and a crown and a royal title and so on. She's made a queen. She had no hopes for help or anything better than the garbage dump, and now she's a queen. Now you tell me, why does that story make your heart sing? I know that it already does. I'm, I'm taking it for granted that it already does. You know how I know that it does? Because hopeless nobody becomes glorious somebody is one of the greatest stories that gets retold over and over and over again. You don't believe me? Ugly duckling becomes glorious swan. Ordinary girl catches the eye of extraordinary guy. It's like every rom-com ever, right? Pauper becomes prince. Scullery maid with mean stepsisters becomes princess with the glass slipper. Boy who lives in the cupboard under the stairs becomes the chosen one and the mighty wizard. Forgettable, puny little hobbit becomes adventurer and hero. It's everywhere. It is the plot of so many dramas, so many adventure stories, most romances. It's in your blood. Why? I'm going to say perhaps because your creator put it there. The re- that's the reason why historically Christians have prioritized, by the way, ministry to orphans. It's why we're working to invest ourselves more and more in, the, uh, in, in care for orphans and foster children in our area, in our region. Because God apparently delights to write orphan stories that are nothing short of resurrection from the dead and love going from dumpster to the dining room. So when you, when you find this God then who, who resurrects the despised, loves the worthless, and you've heard all the stories already. You already know the stories. I just told them to you. The ugly duckling and the hobbit and the boy under the stairs. You already know the stories and you find this God so that your heart can sing at the unbelievable hope of discovering everything you've longed for. All, all the stories that you wish were true are now true. They're true in Him. It's why we tell the stories. Everything you're trying to find. I mean, on the sinful side of things, everything you're trying to find in the addiction to food or the addiction to alcohol or the addiction to leisure or the uh, addiction to the soul-sucking screen device inside your pocket, all that has your frantic, restless heart searching, searching for the lover of your soul. So He's the God who resurrects the despised. He's the God who loves the worthless. He's the God who fills the empty. What does God Almighty do with Jerusalem? And the sinner, by the way. Well, what what happened to Jerusalem? I mean, if you you think, coming out of Egypt, I bathed you with water. Some commentators think that that's a reference to the Red Sea. I, I bathed you with water, you passed through the Red Sea. Interestingly, virtually all the commentators before, I don't know, 17th, 18th century, say, baptism. <laughs> I mean, vir- virtually all of them throughout church history, up until maybe the last two, three, four hundred years, have seen, have seen this as a reference to baptism. Washed you with water, washed off your blood, anointed you with oil. And so, so she, was, she was rescued, she was loved, she was wedded, she became a queen, but she wasn't only given like a castle, so to speak, She was given everything she could have wanted. Do you remember that list? Blessing upon blessing. You can just leave it here. I'm just going to walk through it quickly with you. Verse 9, she gets cleaned up. Verse 10, fine new clothes. Verses 11 and 12, jewelry, accessories, a crown. Verse 13, food. Verse 14, then, verse 14, please. After all of that, what does she get? She gets glory. Your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. It was perfect through the perfection you had. Oh, wait, no, no, sorry. Through the splendor I bestowed. That's what it says. And where this will go for the rest of chapter 16 is is you took all of that and treated it like garbage. But again, before we get there, I just want us this morning to take a moment and be amazed that this is the heart of our God. He, he gives himself to the worthless, so that he can fill up the empty. And I want to pause to ask, do you know this God who gifts and graces I don't know if gift is a verb but who gives you gifts and graces like this? Is this your God? Is your God a rescuer? A cherisher? Thank you lover of your soul, a redeemer, a giver of good gifts, or is he stingy and distant and cold? Is he like the guy in Oliver Twist, serving gruel, here's your slop, you better take it and you better like it. A cold and distant and stingy God will only ever evoke in you a cold and distant and stingy faith. this shows up in our prayer life. If we're honest, the things we pray for ourselves and the things we pray for those we love, for our neighbors, for our nation, for our world. And maybe maybe one way that this picture of God in this first portion of Ezekiel 16, maybe one day it can help us this morning is to invite us to repent of perpetual low expectations of our God. Because I mean Look at what he does for his people whom he loves. To, to repent of low expectation. Not because, by the way, we've been empowered to boss God around. Not because we can give God a plan to follow. Can you, I mean, can you imagine God uh, telling the angels, I'm going to redeem Israel. One of them says, ah, you're going to beat up their enemies. Give them a kingdom. The Lord might say, well, yes, actually. But first, I'm going to take this guy, Joseph. He's going to have it really hard. Jealousy from his brothers, sold by them, false accusations, unjust imprisonment, so that he can keep my people from starving to death. And then I'm going to put him in Egypt, and they'll suffer for a time, and then wilderness, and then kingdom. And then they'll make a mess of it. <laughs> then exile, then crucifixion and death of my son, then resurrection. And, and can you imagine... I mean, that's, that's just not how we would have planned it out. Can you imagine some Israelite in Egypt 10 years before Moses shows up to confront Pharaoh, praying, God, I don't have to ask you for deliverance. I know and declare that by next week at half past seven, we'll be sipping wine and carving up roasted lamb in the comfort of whatever, leaving uh, the promised land. I've said before, and I'll say again, Americans don't do moderation well. This is true of Christians and, and those who are not Christians. And for many Christians, this also tends to infect our prayer. What, what I mean is that we have two modes for prayer. One is like trying to encourage a distant God to be more loving. And then the other one is demanding that a subservient God do whatever we tell him. Surely, Surely there's another way to do this. The text in Ezekiel gives to you and me a God who loves, who loves, a God who loves you and rescues you, not just because he's God and it sort of makes him look good to do stuff like that, but because he actually loves you. This text in Ezekiel gives us a God who loves and who's powerful, by the way. And most of the time when our faith is troubled, it's troubled because we've stopped believing one of those two things, either that he loves or that he's powerful. There's, something's gotten inky with those two. And so this is, this is where our hearts need to be fixed, on this God who loves and if you're not a Christian this morning, I, invite, I, I simply say, behold the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, who resurrects the despised, who loves the worthless, who fills the empty, and let your pride be put to death by this God so that you can be found by Him. Repent of your sin today and believe. If you are a Christian, I would say, behold your God, the God of the universe, who resurrected, despised you. despised you, who loved and loves worthless you, who filled and fills empty you, and let your heart rejoice and receive the relief of the love of God in this text so consuming it makes you a little uncomfortable with some of that language, right? This is the love of God for His people. It's frequent in the Old Testament. It's also, you know, frequent in the New Testament. This image of God's people as a bride. and that Just just in passing, some really wonky and frankly really creepy theology has been dreamed up by people who thought, I, the individual person, am the bride of Jesus. N- no. The, the church, corporately together, is the bride of Jesus. It's an important distinction. If that distinction, as I just stated, it doesn't make sense to you, then don't worry about it for the moment. But I, I just want to state that, that that bride of Jesus' language is for his people, the church, gathered together. But this love is real, and for all of us, the love of God for his people, because he's always been the husband of his people. And so this should steady you, because God loves you. He loves you. Can you even avoid the discomforting love in this chapter? He loves you. And you see the repeated emphasis on his own power. So remember that he loves me, that he's powerful, are the two things that can kind of get cloudy or foggy, especially in times of suffering. But if you just sort of walk through the verses in this portion, is God powerful? I mean, verse 6, I said to you, live. Verse 7, I made you flourish. Verse 8, I covered you with my garment. I made a vow to you. Verse 9, I washed you. I anointed you. Verse 10, I clothed you. I wrapped you. Verse 11, I adorned you. Verse 12, I put a ring on you. I put a crown on you. Verse 14, your renown went forth because of the beauty I bestowed on you. This is... Then the same love that compels the Son of God to go to the cross to die and rise again, so that our sins remain in the grave, and yet the resurrection and the life gets up out of the grave, having conquered our sin and death, so that we can receive that forgiveness again and again. I mean, you see the, the repeated emphasis in, this, in these 14 verses about God, uh, what, what God is saying. I did it, I did it, I write, I said to you live, I made you flourish, I covered you with my garments, so on and so on. This repeated emphasis is like bell tolls throughout this part of the chapter. God saying, I did it, I did it, I did it, I redeemed you, I rescued you, I gave you life, I made a covenant with you, I gave you every blessing that you needed to do this and more. A fellow named St. Jerome, a uh, Christian historian and preacher who lived about 300 years after the resurrection, he said when he was studying this text, he said, God is telling Jerusalem, God is telling Jerusalem this. You are not perfect through your own works, through your own knowledge, through the boasting of your heart, but through my beauty, which I had put on you freely through my mercy. And so this is what our God does with us. And so today, perhaps what we need is to repent of thinking so little of the love and power of our God. He couldn't use stronger language, could he, than that which we've just seen in chapter 16. Or perhaps it is, we need to repent of a tendency that is very much in my heart, I've seen it repeatedly, I'm going to assume it's in some of yours as well, that we take God's gifts and we reclassify them. God says, here, my gifts. And we say, okay, I'm going to put this into the category of stuff I earned. (laughs) Pride. Or, We say, okay, thank you, Lord. I'm now going to put this in the category of stuff I have to earn or live up to. And that's despair. Pride, despair. You see, your enemy, the devil, wants to take God's gifts to you and turn them into accusations against you. And indeed, sometimes God's goodness and God's gifts will expose our ingratitude. That's actually a big point of this text but also the text is in the context of of rebellion and idolatry and abomination. Your, Your God desires, Christian, that you see Him as good because that's what He is. He gives and He blesses, He steadies, He instructs, He strengthens, and then the devil comes along and says, Oh boy, He certainly has given you a lot. Hmm, that's a lot to live up to, you know. It's a lot I'm seeing a lot of reasons that you gotta try really hard and earn this. I'm seeing a lot of reasons why you gotta do enough and fight hard enough to be worthy of it. Do not fall for it. God comes in and says, I love you, you are mine, my people, I've made you my bride. Gift, 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 blessing, joy, encouragement, strength, hope, healing, grace. And the devil whispers, burden, 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 more to live up to, more to be worthy of. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. Just as God Almighty came to the worthless, trashed, discarded Israel, he finds her wallowing in her blood and he says, live. Now he comes to you with the same words of life. His words of life, what do they do? They say, live. God's words revive you. That's so why we gather here together every Sunday to hear God's words again. We, 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 we confess them. If you've noticed, God always gets the first word of our worship service. We call it the call to worship. Right? God always gets the first word because that's what you need most. We're going to start off with God's words. We're going to sing God's words. We're going we're to preach God's words. We're going to pray God's words, Lord's Prayer. We're going to see God's words made visible in the Supper. Why? Because His words revive us. His baptism washes you. His Spirit anoints you. And He blesses you with all that you need to make it to the last day. And just as He comes to Israel, to Jerusalem, wallowing in her blood, and He says, Live. Today, at this table, His body broken for you. His blood shed for you. And He invites you in and says, Live. Live. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our Father, thank you for your love, apart from which we would, we would perish, we would be forgotten. And so, so we need this morning for you to revive our hearts at the reality of your love for us, your kindness that draws us to repentance, your forgiveness that covers all of our sins. Hallelujah, what a Savior.